Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. I'm Grant Steinfeld, and I'm here today with Luke Schantz. So, Luke, recently you had a very interesting conversation with Valentin Berkovici from Chainkit and Jason McGee, CTO of Cloud Platform at IBM. Can you say a little bit more about what went down? Absolutely. This was a really interesting conversation. We were, we're talking about security, which is incredibly relevant, and about chain of custody of data, because we live in a world now where it's not just someone necessarily getting behind your firewall and getting your data or in, injecting some malicious code that you then run. Your entire data sphere, I don't know what to call it, your entire data sphere is vulnerable. If someone is able to manipulate information at any point end to end it could compromise how your models work how your code runs either for you know malicious or or theft purposes or it, it really is the wild west security and the exploits are unpredictable but you have to be able to deal with anything right. absolutely i'm glad you mentioned wild west because it really feels like this open frontier of orchestration opportunities and these opportunities are varied as well as offering a huge broad tax surface where stealth cyber crimes can and cyber intrusion will happen so how do you know that these things are happening a and b it's not just your data that is at threat. We're also looking at these various other pipelines that come up so that you have your infrastructure pipeline, your deployment pipelines, your source code pipelines, and the dependencies within your source code as well. Are, you know, those can be tainted. So how do you know? And how can you tell? So why don't we do? Uh, why don't we get to it? Do you want to listen to it? Absolutely. Let's, let's listen yeah. to it right now. Okay, go ahead. Here we go. Val Berkovici, Valentin. Some people see me on my uh, name badge, but it's Val for short. Co-founder and CEO of uh, Chainkit.com. We are a cybersecurity company. We are cloud native ourselves, but we don't necessarily position ourselves that way because cybersecurity is a pretty broad problem nowadays topic, inside yeah. and outside of the cloud. My background, I was, I was CTO of a company called NetApp and uh, after the acquisition of SolidFire. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in the enterprise storage business, databases beforehand. And while at NetApp and SolidFire, I had the privilege of being one of the founding governing board members of CNCF. So that's how I got here as I got to work with Sarah and Craig and Joe and uh, a whole bunch of other people, Chris, obviously, uh, as the CNCF was forming. And it was... It's actually really cool to look back yeah, and, you know, see what humble beginnings we had because, you know, honestly, my mindset was, how can we make this better than OpenStack? <laughs> About four years ago, five years ago, you know. You who's... Said, that's like a low bar. <laughs> well, <laughs> we had to aim for something, hard. right? <laughs> and, uh, and it's just amazing to see the popularity in the community that's grown since then and just right. how the product has probably succeeded in my mind, you know, a topic for a little bit later on, a bit too well. You know, now there's so many things going on. It's not that simple to uh, to manage a Kubernetes cluster. But I'll, you know, I'll, I'll stop talking now. That's my basic intro, and, and lots more fun stuff to talk about. Great, uh, Jason McGee. I'm the CTO for Cloud Platform at IBM. So I kind of look after everything in the platform as a service space, uh, including, of course, all the cloud native technologies. I don't know. I have long background, a Java app server guy originally in, in IBM was one of the founders of WebSphere app server and then have been doing cloud for in containers for maybe six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, kind of all things cloud native is my, is my life at the moment. So it's fun, <laughs> fun space. So 
maybe we could dig in. You mentioned uh, ChainKit, and I was reading a little bit about this, and it says post-encryption cybersecurity uh, chain of custody as a service. Yeah. So could you – Give us a little insight. I, mean, I, I know what those words mean. And I think I have an idea, but could you help define it, especially for? I'm glad you do because yeah. you know yeah. we're still message testing, obviously, yeah. to see what resonates best. So the use case I think helps define you know what it is we're trying to claim there and, and the market segment we're serving. The use case we're finding right now, particularly in the security context, and uh, previously to that, it was in the attestation for compliance and um, an audit type of context was. We have encryption technologies right now. We have role-based access control. And when people play by the rules, then those technologies work for mm-hmm. you know confidentiality, for integrity of data, for availability of data, and so forth. In an adversarial context, the way the cyber crime, the cyber warfare really environment works, no one plays by the rules. And one of the common sort of substrates of any or really parts of a chain of any attack would be after you exploit some kind of vulnerability to penetrate a network, the very next step is privilege escalation. So so many techniques, whether you're Windows, attacking Windows environment or Linux environment or anything in between, to go from whatever role you had to an administrative level of authority pretty quickly. Yep. And once you have that, unfortunately, all these existing security barriers we have in place, you know, encryption and, and others, aren't as effective because when you have root credential, root authority on a server, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And the common thing, if you look at a very popular framework in the cybersecurity world called the MITRE attack framework, M-I-T-R-E, it's a set of 11 columns and a whole bunch of rows which classifies the most common, commonly reviewed you know, threats and attacks and categorizes them. Mm-hmm. So within the 11 columns of popularity, defense evasion is the most populous column, the most rows. And within all those rows are various techniques used to fool security software, to bypass encryption, to effectively tamper with data, to tamper with the integrity of code pipelines, infrastructure, and so forth, and accomplish the purpose of the attack, whether it's ransomware, whether it's data breaches or something else. So bearing that use case in mind, which is a little bit complex to articulate, but it's also one of the most common attack scenarios, what can we do to detect when that's happening and begin to contain the damage? It's hard to prevent these things, but to contain the damage and ultimately you know, minimize any expensive response and recovery process. That's what chains of custody address. The way we implement them, they're an out-of-bound ledger of real activity, whether it's malicious or, or benign. And particularly when it's malicious, you can verify against the integrity of these chains of, of custody, either on a very proactive basis if you're in a threat detection, cybersecurity de- detection mode, or simply attest or, or prove the lack of integrity in a forensic you know, audit analysis compliance mode. So we offer that simply as a service in a bow tie behind three RESTful APIs and specific app plugins for environments such as Splunk, Elasticsearch, AWS CloudTrail, <laughs> even PowerShell actually logs a lot because it's one of the most common automation tools that attackers as well as sysadmins use. Interesting. So you're using blockchain technology under the covers? Of course. That? We don't yeah. meet with that anymore because right. that gets into a, you know, a red herring. But right. uh, we apply various blockchain technologies, including Hyperledger, Fabric, Sawtooth, Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin blockchain network if you want. And VMware, as you may know, has an open source project called Concord. They're about to commercialize that, you know, make it a formal offering, and we're going to work with them as well. Great. 
And so you had mentioned that you are K native, in, in, but you don't necessarily bill yourself as that. But I, I'm kind of curious to dig into that. So how does that work? From what you're saying, it, it sounds like this could be running anywhere, right? Is this a hybrid cloud solution for these types of clients? So how, how does that tie into your, right. your... So we're cloud native in that we're container-based, as you can imagine. Right. And I think this is an interesting point here, because I don't think I'm alone or our company's alone. Our architecture is containerized. However... We don't necessarily want to be in the business of operating our own Kubernetes cluster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as we look at, for example, I'm just going to call them out, the AWS pricing for managed Kubernetes you know, services, they're literally higher than if we were doing this through EC2 instances, hmm. right? At least at our scale. Our scale isn't massive just yet. So we're, we're rolling our own. We're just managing our own, you know, containers. We're not necessarily getting too sophisticated. We're not looking at meshes or sidecars just yet because we don't necessarily want to dip our toes yet into the Kubernetes waters as a small startup because the cost is literally too high for us to, to have it managed. Now, are we going to shop it around to having, because we have a back end and a front end. The front end is on some kind of Kubernetes cluster in the cloud on-prem. The back end is a blockchain or a set of blockchains, effectively. Mm -hmm. We're definitely going to be customer-driven and looking at. So it'll be interesting for us as an exercise to compare against all the blogs published out there of what's it like to compare you know, Kubernetes-managed clusters on Google Cloud versus Azure versus AWS right. versus IBM versus Oracle and so forth. But uh, that's the world we're in right now. So it's very much top of mind, you know, Kubernetes, the operational realities of Kubernetes, and certainly how you can secure Kubernetes, but use Kubernetes to offer an interesting security service, such as chain of custody. Yeah, it feels like we're at this kind of interesting juncture. I've, I've actually had a variant of this conversation a couple times just today, where it's like Kubernetes is obviously evolving to this very dominant runtime position within the industry, but someone like you who's building a solution where the core solution is not about cloud native or Kubernetes, but you, you yourself want to use that platform yeah. and like this whole, like, do you bring Kubernetes with you? Mm -hmm. Do you prereq Kubernetes in the customer environment? Do you leverage a managed service? Like, how do you get the platform? And it feels like, you know, we're like, I don't know. We're just on the cusp where it's like, I think most organizations have some Kubernetes strategy, but many of them don't have like a platform you can just drop onto. Yeah, yeah. So like you're, you're caught in this maybe one or two year window where it's like maybe two years from now, like everyone you talk to is going to have Kubernetes somewhere that you could just point to and you don't have to worry about it. But right now yeah, you're caught on, do you build an architecture that's independent of Kube or right, do right. you kind of bring it with you? And that's just an interesting, you know, an interesting challenge. And I think a lot of us as cloud providers are also looking at, can we take the managed uh, as a service mm -hmm. things we're doing and extend them to other environments, extend them on-prem, extend them into other clouds so that you could have some consistent Kubernetes platform that could run wherever you needed it to land. Right. I thought that was architecture, you know, years ago when we were talking about that right. vision, but it's the reality today. So yeah. as I said, I have customers that want the front end of the service we provide, want those RESTful API endpoints to be on Azure right. for latency or yeah. regulatory or whatever reasons, to be on IBM Cloud, to be on various clouds. So ultimately, our developers are happy, right? They're just going to ship a container and it works on their laptop and, you know, right. <laughs> in theory, it should just scale from there. The operational reality today is much uglier, much more confusing. And, and just, you know, seems at least to be a lot more of an uphill effort right now to actually satisfy a, a, even a present day customer requirement is, which is have these, you know, API endpoints that are basically container based function consistently 
at a you know cost effective price on various cloud providers as well as on prem. Right. We clearly, you know, when we talk to government agencies, when we talk to financial services customers, for various reasons, right or wrong, which is a topic outside the scope here, mm-hmm. they insist on doing this on prem. And we, you know, we want to make sure that it's not a, a huge development, but especially support burden to, to support them with the same containers with a you know on-prem managed Kubernetes cluster or clusters plural. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge, I think, of the kind of software vendor right now, which is like, how do you build a solution that works in all the clouds? Because you get dragged there mm-hmm. one way or another and works on-prem. And then you also get the challenge of like, you you probably want to do it more like SaaS. Like, that's easier for you in mm-hmm. lots of ways, easier for the customer in lots of ways. But you get forced into having a software distribution, too. Mm-hmm. So you can do on-prem or yeah. what, or as just an escape hatch to like, well, what you can run anywhere you want. Here's my software. Go do it. And that feels like an untapped opportunity to, you know, I think Kubernetes provides the building blocks that we need to give partners a common way to build all this stuff. But like delivering it as a service everywhere, I think, is the challenge for the next 12 months or so is how do we do that consistently? Yeah, I'm looking right? forward to seeing progress there yeah, for sure, contributing yeah, for to sure. it where we can, yeah. certainly in terms of use cases. And, uh, and yeah, seeing the progress. Here's an interesting use case. You know, maybe it's addressed or maybe it's not. I honestly don't know. What if certain Kubernetes operators want to attach specific sidecars mm-hmm. that I'm not even aware of? Mm-hmm. How would we even, you know, test for security, test for efficiency, mm-hmm. latency? Right. And that's an area of arbitrary sidecars kind of being attached in a mesh to uh, you know, a particular workflow you've developed with your own cluster, with your own containers. Yeah, this is one of the challenges yeah. we're trying to solve in Istio is like, we have a sidecar with Envoy that we use for a list of things. Mm-hmm. There's this like desire to have a general plug point, which so far has been served kind of off the data plane, yeah. which doesn't really scale in the long run. And so you want to move it in, but now it's like, oh, now I'm just inserting arbitrary code <laughs> exactly. into the data plane. And like, what does that do to the environment? Is it secure? Like, is what could really, possibly go wrong? What could so, go yeah. wrong? Yeah. So it's interesting. That's a hard problem to go solve. But it's also, it's our real world problem. And I, you know, maybe I'm being too subjective here, but I don't think we're, we're that unique. I think we're fairly yeah. representative of software developers and cloud-native software developers. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, and I've heard the similar at, at IBM, right? Like, we obviously have so many different client scenarios we deal with, but we also are using these things internally yeah. and, and facing that. Sim- sounds like a similar situation with yourself. You're you're using it, but then you're also dealing with these other use cases. So it's mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity for empathy here. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And, yeah, a lot, a lot of, of experience as well to kind of use to harden the systems we're building. Opportunity everywhere. And so something that uh, I thought I would ask, how does portability like play into sort of the, I mean, overall within the application as well as data in, into what's happening with your process so we're intentionally not very data heavy because as you know we do have the ultimate integrity is backed by one or more blockchains and if you know anything about blockchains the more you you burden them down with integrity the less they scale and become effective at all so we're very data light intentionally we we take typically take hashes so in one high-end example we take hashes of four billion security events per hour Mm -hmm. with particular semiconductor manufacturer and we hash those uh, either in batches or individual log lines, depending on the use case, depending on the log. And then that gets registered on one or more blockchains. So there's a high volume of traffic here, or what's, what's the best term? Probably high throughput of traffic, but it's not necessarily a lot of data, if you mm-hmm. can understand that. Yep. It's just a you know, low granularity, just high, you know, high increment, if you will. Right. And portability in that context um, is, is always required, as we talked about earlier, 
It's very clearly, you know, maybe it's kind of a redundant statement. It's very network centric. So it's all about taking logs and then shipping them from sources to an aggregation indexing point, then ultimately to a dashboarding monitoring alerting tool that consumes those logs and, and, and produces valuable insights and valuable actions for a security team, a security analyst to take. And the important part of that workflow is that every one of those points, or in between particularly, every one of those points, there's an opportunity for at least a man-in-the-middle attack or something else to tamper with logs. Splunk has actually blogged about this Mm -hmm. starting four years ago with the fact that, yeah, as their tool is becoming more and more popular for security analysts, the adversaries caught on, started tampering with the data that feeds the tool to try and remain invisible to the security analyst. So end-to-end integrity of today, you know, the focus would be on a security analytics pipeline, a log pipeline. But in my mind, every marketing pipeline, newsfeed pipeline, manufacturing prediction pipeline is as valuable, if not more, in certain cases. And the integrity of those pipelines is really left up in the air right now. There's very little individual integrity with each of the points between the transformations, and there's certainly no end-to-end integrity. And those are where we insert our APIs. That's where we try and begin a chain of custody at any arbitrary point in a pipeline, and then terminate at least one part of it because it's a one-to-many relationship. You can register something and then verify it ad infinitum. Um, and so a chain of custody is you know anything between that registration and verification action, anywhere you deem valuable mm-hmm. for integrity or tamper evidence in that pipeline. And, uh, and portability, you know, we, we take it for granted, but as we discussed, Conceptually, architecturally, it's not an issue, which is a great accomplishment that Kubernetes has delivered us. Operationally, still, you know, particularly when, when <laughs> the bill comes, right, the monthly cloud bill <laughs> becomes a serious issue, you know, an opportunity for improvement. Yeah, it's interesting. You've touched on, like, I think there's, you touch on kind of the data aspect of portability. Where's the data go? How does it get there? Where does it live? Who interacts with it? That's one dimension. And then the, the code dimension of portability, mm-hmm. which is really where Kubernetes has been more impactful, let's say, yeah. is the kind of code part of it. And and I don't know, portability is an interesting topic because I think for a lot of people, they're not, it's not like they're literally trying to move their their applications around all the time. Like, you know, I've been doing cloud for a long time and I like I always get in conversations about like bursting workloads to cloud and about like price arbitrage in cloud. And I'm like, <laughs> these are really fun conversations, but like nobody's actually doing this. And they're old conversations. They're old. Too, They've been talking so. about from the beginning. Like everyone's like, hey, what do you do for bursting? I'm like, does it really matter? Are you doing bursting now? We just like to ask about it. Like mm-hmm. nobody's actually doing it. So portability, I think, is more about like one insurance. It's yeah, just yeah. like insurance for the future that if I need to, I like I have an understanding of what the cost of motion will be because I'm built on a way that gives me some level of independence from my hosting platform. So I think that's like one dimension of portability. And then the other dimension of portability is just like agility for the future. You know, I've, I've worked with a number of other partners in the IBM cloud context where they've built Kubernetes based code architectures, you know, and they started on AWS and then they got a good deal from Azure and they moved Azure later. And then I came along and now they've moved on IBM cloud and that, Motion, it allowed them to kind of exploit a business opportunity because they had an architecture that allowed them to have code portability, right? But if you don't solve both, if you don't have like a good understanding of what you're doing with the data and a good understanding of the code, it, it's kind of like academic, yeah. right? Whether you're actually going to achieve any benefit out of it. In my world used to, so I would answer, I would have answered that question about three to four years ago exclusively from the perspective of data gravity, mm-hmm. right? Where's most of your data? It's expensive to move it. You want to mine it now that you have it somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you're going to basically, you know, ha- 
organically develop and organically maintain most of your services around where the data currently lives. It could be on-prem if there's too much on-prem. Certainly could be in, you know, one cloud provider that started with some aggressive storage pricing and then sort of a honeypot business model. What I find today, though, is that data gravity still matters, but I'm also considering service gravity, right? Mm -hmm. So if a cloud has better security services, you know, more security on by default, easier monitoring and so forth, that's a form of gravity that's very attractive to me right now, particularly in our context where relatively we're data light. Um, And other, you know, whether it's machine learning services and and other cool, and and a community, you know, community gravity as well. So for me, it's it's always a gravity discussion. But it's definitely evolved from sort of a core resource like data to these other key things. Like yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, you know, it's like almost like the opportunity cost of running mm-hmm. in an environment. And if you find a platform that makes security easier, then that's mm-hmm. a whole list of work that you don't have to do anymore, mm-hmm. right? That you can kind of defer to the platform and that provides value to you that might move you Absolutely. in that direction. Yeah, that's interesting. It is interesting to hear about the academically or theoretically the idea of designing once and being able to, you know, send your, your, your Kubernetes everywhere seems like the most important thing. But then in reality, it's, or in practice, like you're saying, sometimes there's rarely even the motivation that you need to do that, or it's, it's, it's not as, uh, sometimes it's a vendor value prop, not a customer value prop, right? Like I can sell to anybody who can run anywhere versus the customer might be like, well, I run there. So as long as you run there, I'm good. Right. What's your, your tech origin story? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's funny. My whole life, computers have always been the thing I want to do. My parents are both IBMers. So I come from one of these like blue blood families <laughs> where, you know, I think at one point my, both my parents, my older sister and me all worked at IBM. So like I kind of grew up around technology. My dad was an engineer. He uh, worked on, uh, tried missile submarines and like early warning radar systems because IBM was big federal systems business at the time. And, and so I was kind of always surrounded by that technology, had early uh, IBM PCs in our house, which, you know, back then was not super common. Like not everyone had one of those like we do today. Uh, and so that, like, I was just always intrigued by that. I was always like the kind of guy who liked to take things apart. My parents used to always joke that I was really good at taking stuff apart and not so great at putting them all back together again. So I had lots of dismantled equipment floating around the house. And so I think it's just a love of, uh, of problem solving and, and an exposure to the technology kind of got me into the space. And then, you know, you kind of go from there. Yeah. Right. That's a great story. And I definitely relate to taking things apart and having those extra parts where you're like, where did they, where did they come from? Right. Exactly. <laughs> They're not necessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Plus, I didn't want that thing anyway. It's yeah. like you take apart a photocopier. I'm like, this has like a 200,000 volt power supply in it. I can do all kinds of cool stuff with this. Forget the photocopier. So. Pretty valuable elements. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Val? What's your, your tech so, origin story? Not surprisingly, a, a whole bunch of common overlapping themes here. I would guess, you know, product specifically for me, it was getting, actually it was starting to play, you know, the, the Atari video games. And if anyone remembers this Mattel and television console, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. that was popular in my basement for a little while with my friends. Ended up getting an Apple II clone, this thing out of LA, I think called an Orange II PC. Cause, you know, back I grew up in Canada, it was really expensive to get like an original Apple. But fell in love with the platform, like everyone else initially from a gaming perspective, mm-hmm. and then got super curious about, you know, what was the software and what, what did, you know, the software look like underneath all these games. So started getting bored of games, you know, surprisingly quickly, actually. I mean, I, to this day, I'm not much of a gamer, yeah. I have to admit, but love the coding. I've always loved the coding aspect of it. And progressed, you know, a friend of mine um, got an IBM PC, so got into the whole IBM world and 
you know, PC DOS, MS DOS, OS2, Windows NT, you know, Unix, Linux, take it from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really from a developer's perspective, you know, much more hands on in the early days and now. That was my origin story, starting with games, you know, shifting quickly to the uh, to the actual software underneath it all. More recently, the the chain kit sort of professional origin story is is pretty interesting. The the parent company name is actually not chain kit; it's a company called Pencil Data. And one of the things we realize in looking at these use cases we talk about is that I keep going back to that Mark Zuckerberg line from a movie that was way ahead of its time, The Social <laughs> Network, like mm-hmm. ten years ago. Around how he, you know, he, he said at one point, allegedly, the internet's written in ink, so you just can't get rid of all these copies of data, which in one sense is true. Data proliferates, but it's not at all written in ink because, as we know, if we look forensically at what happens to data all over the time, all over the place, it's erased and overwritten, often silently without anyone knowing, unless you're really looking very, very hard. Mm-hmm. So that was the origin of the parent company named Pencil Data. And then the use case was really all around driven by a, a machine learning startup I joined called Paradise.io after my NetApp days, being fascinated in learning the data science hands-on that I really hadn't known that way before. And then, of course, confirmation bias being what it was, my passion was always around the data engineering and operations for all these data pipelines that feed machine learning models, training, inference, and so forth. And it became really clear to me, and I kind of became a little bit alarmed when I was at my first RSA in this mindset, that all these cool new machine learning enhancements and features that, say, cybersecurity vendors tout now as part of their portfolios have no integrity checking whatsoever for the raw material that feeds them, which is data, mm-hmm. right? So everyone just blindly assumes the integrity of the data feeds data sets that are training these knowledge models that are making decisions on is this suspicious behavior, is this something that needs to take, you know, we need to take automated remediative action on or not. And it's just a, a massive blind spot, as I see it, certainly, yeah. and, and one that the industry needs to address and one that we're kind of leading by example in this case, which is never assume, you know, the integrity of, of this key material here, your, your data, your data sets in a knowledge model AI context, machine learning context, always verify. So the, the, we have the words for this in the industry, right? We have zero trust, which is a common security phrase and a category of solutions, but they're often applied to technology or data access, system access. Right. We need to take them to the back end of all these systems that feed all of the people requesting access to data and basically say, you know, look at this hardware, look at the firmware on this server. If I'm going to put a pod on it, you know, can the pod trust the actual hardware? Can the node trust the pod? Can the container trust, you know, the, the node? Can the sidecar trust the container? And so forth. We take a lot of these things for granted today, and mm-hmm. we need to do a lot more asserting and verifying of everything, particularly in, in the production environments that all these cool apps are going into right now. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, uh, IBM fellow who's in charge of kind of AI trust space at IBM. And one of the things that she's been developing is essentially like a nutrition label for AI models, which is kind of exactly. like this thing. It's like, yeah. all right, you have this AI model, like where'd the data come from? Mm-hmm. Can you trust it? What was the source of the information that trained the model? Like you have no, it's just this black box. And when we don't even know how half the models actually work, you don't know where the data came from. How are you supposed to trust the system? So yeah, it's a really interesting problem that mm-hmm. we're kind of just assuming and i'll do a shameless plug for ibm here i had a very pleasant surprise i was chairing a security track at tensorflow world just a few weeks ago and i noticed a session from from an ibm presenter Anamesh singh come Mm -hmm. up 
So when I was there, it was it was phenomenal to hear all the work that had been done, Codate, and right. I think it's the Adversarial Detection Toolkit, ADK, mm-hmm. is just one of the projects there. Dealing with, I think, a phrase and a term that's going to become a lot more prevalent in our future, data poisoning. Right. Dealing specifically with that use case. I guess it was a... I guess more than a pleasant surprise. It was, uh, in my mind, about time. You know, what year was this actually going to make it to a mainstream AI conference? And when will the industry begin to take this seriously as a barometer for maturity of machine learning in general, particularly in production? So yeah, it was, you know, there's really good work being done. That's really fascinating. And, uh, we want to, we want to spread the love here. There's a lot more attention needs to be focused on this and, and more work to be done to deliver, you know, (laughs) more secure, machine learning algorithms that are basically already running a lot of our lives today. Yeah. You think about chain of custody for physical objects, but now we need to start thinking about chain of custody for data. And like you're saying, because there's copies and it's traveling, who can see it when, where can you, and like you're saying, if it's vulnerable, you could maybe inject some data, Mm -hmm. copy something over and then affect how another part of your system is going to work down the line and uh, a vulnerability you never even knew was a vulnerability. we We have the same challenge in software delivery supply chains, right? Like you have a software delivery supply chain, containers make that easier, but they also introduce new ways that you can, you know, insert changes in logic or changes in application code into that delivery pipeline. And so like being able to attest that like I built this thing and the thing that I built hasn't changed. It has worked its way through all these environments, got delivered into the world. Like that stuff is really important for customers to be able to, you know, build secure systems and be able to understand that they're, you know, uh, have a, a safe environment that they're operating. Well, and I imagine that's when you start to get into wh- why you need like managed hosting, and because sometimes this it gets so complicated, and you're trying to focus on your mm-hmm. your core business, it's it's a lot to worry about. It is back to opportunity costs. You know, we're here at an open source conference, and there's just so much diversity and richness in in the, the intellectual property, if you will, in the code being generated and, and proliferated through open source libraries. But your operational concern is, can I trust these libraries? You know, what, what if something got inserted? There's, you know, a couple of high profile incidents of, you know, some, some uh, very clever cyber criminals basically finding, um, what's, you know, a project that's kind of idle, not very active, not a lot of contributions going on, not a lot of merge, merges happening and volunteering to be the maintainer you know, right. of the project. And since no one's actively paying attention to it, even though it's like a dependency for thousands of other projects, they say, yeah, I'm sure happy to have someone else look at it. And then before you know it, they insert some malicious code because they're the maintainer. They can do it, you know, in a very stealthy ways. And, and these dependencies now get absorbed into all sorts of projects and no one really knows, you know, that now there's malicious code pretty much in your organic code pipeline. And your own code, the artifacts you're generating now are, are tainted effectively. And it takes a lot of forensic analysis and time, usually after quite a bit of damage, to identify that as a problem, identify the root cost, you know, uh, root cause, I should say, do the, uh, the, you know, the attestation of figuring out exactly attribution, I should say, of, of who was to blame, and then, you know, rooting it out of your system. So the more we can get proactive about these things, the more we can always have these proactive chains of custody of here's how my code pipeline got to where it is. Here's I can attest now, you know, with with full uh, full authority, you know, what it is today on on demand at any time. And here's where I can prove that there was either tampering detected or there is no tampering because of the attestation, right. because of the integrity that, that you know, we're, we're delivering as a chain of custody. So very valuable services in production. 
Uh, maybe the related kind of notion too is like I think about you know a lot of these technologies and people are trying to figure out you know how to run them themselves, how to run Kubernetes themselves, how to build these platforms themselves. And I think sometimes there's also an unspoken benefit of when you when you leverage it off of a you know as a service cloud provider, the cloud providers are operating at a level of scale mm-hmm. that allows them to build architectures that are more isolated. They're multi-tenant by default. Mm-hmm. Usually they're, they're more isolated. They're at a higher level of scale. So you might, you know, in a, in a, as a service context, you're probably running on an architecture that is more suited to the isolation and security concerns than you would be able to do on your own, either because you don't have the skill to do it or because you just don't have the scale to effectively run that. I mean, a simple example in the service I run around Kubernetes, we run the Kubernetes control plane in a separate cluster from your application workers, right? Which is not the normal way that Kubernetes gets deployed. But from a security perspective, it has a lot of advantages because it means like all of those management components that are controlling what's running over here are not in the same domain as the application. So like you're sticking untrusted code from, you know, any random customer in a worker, it can't go in and easily mess with the actual system that's controlling what the state of the world is and what's yeah. running. And so I think there's that dimension too. That's like, you want to be on these, you know, more secure architectures. And right now, a lot of that is happening, I think, in the cloud provider space because that group of people has the scale to be able to explore mm-hmm. these different kinds of architectures. Interesting. And as a consumer, that's very attractive to me, right? I mean, it is, you know, we mentioned right. it before, it's back to opportunity costs. It's things I really can't afford to focus on, I don't want to focus on. I'd rather focus on my core code and IP and, you know, depend on a service that actually has There's isolation of domains, failure domains, security domains, and so forth that deal with at least, you know, if I'm going to pass some kind of SOC 2 compliance audit, deal with the most basic things that you have to do so that I don't have to worry about them right. and staff them myself. Absolutely, yeah. That's really interesting. And it makes so much sense because I think one of the, again, one of the, the things we, we always hear about containers that makes them secure is, you know, versus something that's monolithic is you have this separation. Yeah. But, but even, right, separate, separation process. But even like you're saying, there's, there's other levels of abstraction that can even happen on top of that. Yeah. Uh, but it, it takes some nuance. And what's nice, I mean, and this is from a developer standpoint, um, that, you can get started right away without having to worry about these things, but just know that when you're facing these problems, like where do you go for the right solution to meet your need at that point, but you don't need it right away. You can kind of just get started wherever you're at. Right. Yeah. So, um, let me ask you this. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should, or that we definitely want to, uh, work in there? Touched on a lot of things. I was actually going to start with a joke, uh, you know, because I, I think of the world in terms of pipelines. So you've got code pipelines and data pipelines and model pipelines now mm-hmm. and infrastructure pipelines. So I don't even remember who that senator was, but we all know that you know the internet is a set of set of tubes. You yeah, know, one, one of these sort of ignorant politicians said that at the time. Yeah. but I actually kind of like that that metaphor. <laughs> you like now that analogy? I'm th- yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of it as <laughs> pipelines, right? I mean, everything to me is a pipeline. And I now am suspicious and question the integrity of every pipeline I'm confronted with because I want to know, you know, what the lineage and provenance of that pipeline was so that I've at least eliminated a whole bunch of security concerns I would otherwise have or I would make my own code or my own operations or, you know, look at my Val own thinks all the tubes are routed through suspicious <laughs> exactly. neighborhoods exactly. and you just don't really know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, suspicious plumbers, you know, Mario, Luigi and all that. So, uh, yeah, that's true. Great. And so 
If our listeners wanted to keep up with you, do you have uh, social media accounts, blogs, uh, and, and uh, where, where could they find out more about Chainkit? I'm off Facebook, but addicted to Twitter. So it's not hard to find me on Twitter. V-A-L-B-0-0. Valboo is what my friend sort of called the handle. And Chainkit.com. Excellent. Twitter's the place for me, too. Don't trust Facebook. <laughs> um, J.R. McGee on Twitter. So reach me there. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. We hope you found this episode interesting. Please subscribe to the IBM Developer Podcast on the platform of your choice. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And of course, please share with your friends or colleagues who might find this interesting as well. You can find me, Grant, at G. Steinfeld on Twitter, and my co-host, Luke Schantz, at Luke Schantz. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. 